In this interview, I'm joined by Ron Serrano, who, after securing financial freedom, turned away from the business world and declared the rest of his life a retreat, focusing all of his attention on spiritual awakening. Ron is a longtime contemplative practitioner and co-founder of the online meditation group Dharma Mechanics. We discuss Ron's rigorous practice schedule, including his advanced lucid dreaming practice, and discover the one technique that increases lucid dreams by 20 times. Ron also discusses his close association with Yale neuroscientist Judd Brewer, who scanned the brains of many meditation masters and reveals the surprising results of those many years of research. So without further ado, Ron Serrano. Ron Serrano, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. You've had a many decades of practice experience, but I'm curious what it was that first got you interested in meditation? Well, I'll start, uh, I guess, maybe kind of almost in the middle. I, uh, just uh, in the late 90s, I had uh, the uh, f- fortunate experience of having some free time after not having barely any free time for, for quite a while. And uh, at first, I didn't really know what I was going to do with all that free time. But I did have an interest in uh, Kundalini Yoga as a result of, of all things, a leadership training program that I had been involved in a few years before. And it was a week-long thing. And uh, it was kind of a, kind of a groundbreaking uh, program. It was, very, uh, it was a small program, but it was very, very highly acclaimed. And it was run by a guy named Mark Ewell, who was an ex-CFO of Kripalu, which is the yoga uh, retreat center up in Massachusetts. And he actually ran it. His business partner was an ex-minister. And uh, if that sounds like an unlikely skill set for someone uh, leading a leadership training program, it, 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 really, it really was, except when you realized that the basic premise of the program was that to be a good leader, you had to know who you were. And of course, as soon as you get into that, well, then you're into spirituality. Right? because that's sort of the classic who am I inquiry. So among other things, uh, in, this, in this program, every morning you had to do, you had to get up real early in the morning, and uh, Mark led a, about a 30-minute session of yoga. And uh, I'd never done yoga before. I'd always been very uh, athletically inclined, uh, was, you know, used to sports and things like that, but I'd never done yoga. So he gave the basic instructions. He said, look, the key is to just pay attention to whatever you feel. And you're not trying to strive for anything. You're not trying to stretch, you know, beyond what you can stretch. You're not going to look at anybody else. You're not going to compare yourself to anybody else. And as soon as we started, uh, the problem was at that time, I was just uh, way too self-centered. And so I basically did everything wrong. I didn't follow any of the instructions. I tried to stretch more and more and more you know, regardless of what it felt like. I started looking around the room. I'd see somebody that looked like they were stretching a little bit more. So I try to stretch some more. So it was just, I mean, it was a disaster in terms of following the instructions. However, in spite of all that, at the end of a half an hour, I, I was suddenly in the state that was like nothing I'd ever been in before. And the best way I can describe it is that I had all this energy. Uh, there was like a half an hour before you had to start the uh, the official program. And I, I just felt like I could do anything. You know, I could climb a mountain if I wanted to. But the other thing was that I was just incredibly calm. 
everything was just really, really calm. And I never had that before. I was used to two modes where either I was revved up and could do just about anything, or I was just completely collapsed and, and, and in a vegetative state to try to, to, to recover, you know, my, my normal daily experiences. So over the next couple of years, while I was still working, I was uh, experimenting a little bit with the yoga. And now that I had this free time, I figured I was really going to explore this in, in, in some, some serious way. And the other interesting thing was that in talking to Mark, he started to describe some experiences that he had had as a result of Kundalini Yoga. He was a disciple of Amrit Desai, uh, who was a disciple of the original Swami Kripalu. So this was a, you know, a heavy duty, serious tradition. And um, between Mark and uh, another one of the teachers at Kripalu, a, a teacher named Yoganand, I started uh, doing the, the Kundalini Yoga uh, quite frequently. You know, every, every day I'd spend at least an hour doing it in the morning. And uh, you know, if you're familiar at all with Kundalini Yoga, you start getting a lot of energy moving through the body. And uh, what's happening is there's a natural way that energy should flow. And uh, modern, you know, Western life just completely mucks up that flow. You know, it's instead of going up through the spine, it's going off in different directions. And there's all kinds of constrictions that we get as a result of different stuff we do, you know, uh, called karma, you can call it karma. And uh, so I started doing that and that was really the starting point. I mean, that, that was the, the, the first germ of doing some kind of a rigorous practice every single day. When you say Kundalini yoga, and you're tracing that back to Kripalu. Are you differentiating that from the Yogi Bhajan style of Kundi Yoga? Kundi well, yoga? you know, like anything else that's been around for many thousands of years, variations proliferate. So you will find many different branches and many different strains of Kundalini Yoga. I think you would find that almost all of, and I sort of dabbled around with a bunch of things. I think you'll find that almost all of them have uh, a lot of similarities. Uh, but they all have their differences too. I mean, yoga, I mean, there's so many different kinds of yoga. There's very you know, passive yoga is very uh, intensely physical ones. Um, but the whole idea of, of the Kundalini yoga is to get this natural Kundalini force to release the blockages in your, in the physical body and, and then the subtle body and then ultimately the causal body. But one of the things that I would say about the, um, the particular Kripalu yoga uh, that is uh, somewhat distinct is spontaneous yoga. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but it's really quite, it's quite fascinating. Normally throughout our lives, the mind tells the body what to do. Okay. So if you're sitting on the sofa, the mind decides uh, it wants potato chips. It tells the body to go get potato chips. You get up, you go to the pantry and you come back with the potato chips. In spontaneous yoga, what happens is that the mind completely stands down. It just, it just doesn't give any directions to the body and the body takes over. It just spontaneously takes over. And of course the body knows exactly what it wants because the body knows where it's constricted. And so all of a sudden you just start to move. And uh, it's really quite an amazing thing. I mean, the mind just sits back and is amazed at what's happening. 
And uh, if you've ever watched anyone do it, uh, a lot of it looks like kind of like a slow motion writhing uh, on, on the ground primarily. Uh, some of it looks like uh, the kind of yoga postures you might see. A lot of it is just completely like nothing you've ever seen before. And it can also get quite energetic. I mean, you can get into these vertical postures, uh, headstands, uh, shoulder stands, handstands. And it'll go on for maybe uh, however long it needs to go on to re re release all the constriction. It might be 20 minutes, half an hour, something like that. And then all of a sudden the body says, ah, that's it. Everything's been released and it just stops. That's fascinating. From what I understand, the Kundalini yoga that you're talking about, well, when most people think about, hear the term Kundalini yoga, they think of the Yogi Bhajan system. Uh, but actually, that's his system. But there's actually a whole range of systems, Indic systems and systems in Tibet, uh, of working with that, you could say, Kundalini energy or Chandali yeah. energy. And it sounds like what you're describing is really quite different to the, the Yogi Bhajan, which I think that from a branding point of view is what most people would think of when they, when they think of Kundalini Yoga. It might be important to differentiate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's so many variations of this stuff, um, yoga in general. And uh, there's something to be learned from all of them. I mean, a normal, a normal instinct when you hear about all this variation, you say, oh, well, what's the best one? You know, I want to do the best one or, um, you know, well, what, oh, they have different ways of doing it. One must be right. One must be wrong. And one of the things that uh, has been very evident in trying all kinds of practices, I mean, we're going to get into meditation shortly, is that there are virtues in all these practices. Uh, that's, they've survived uh, kind of a, a Darwinian process over thousands of years the reason they're still around is because they worked. There's a lot of value in learning a, a number of these systems and trying to uh, get the benefits of, uh, of what each of them offers. I've heard you talk about a significant spiritual experience that you had at university. And I'm curious as to how much that influences the conversation. And also, I'm wondering what it is that you were doing or how it was the set of circumstances that came to the point where you had an awful lot of free time. By way of background, I'm curious what what led to that place. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's easy to answer. I mean, I was uh, running businesses uh, for quite a few years, and um, I just it wasn't necessary to do that anymore. I just had enough uh, independence and freedom to try to do some other things. Hmm. And and the spiritual experience. I mean, this is actually. Um, when we started out, I was debating whether I was going to start at the beginning or start at the end. And in a way, the place that I started really was the beginning. Uh, and that the experience, which I'm going to describe, I'll describe in just a minute, um, it had no context. And as a result of it, it's the kind of experience that uh, very often you'll hear about that really changes people's lives, if it's an understood experience. And the issue was that it wasn't understood. Uh, I had no context for it. Uh, there was no tradition. I had uh, no teacher. Uh, as it turns out, I did have at the time a very intense concentration practice as a result of uh, intercollegiate sports that I was involved in. But I, I, I didn't realize that it was a concentration practice. Someone had said to me, do you have a concentration practice? I, I didn't know what they were talking about. So yeah, so the way, so the way that that experience uh, from college fits in is after, uh, after doing the Kundalini yoga, 
what I would do at the end, the way every yoga session ends, pretty much in any tradition, is in Shavasana, where you just lie in a dead man's pose. You're on your back and you just don't move. Everything stops. And that was very typically uh, what would happen after spontaneous yoga. I mean, you've kind of burned up all the excess energy and constrictions that the, that the body had, so you just stop. And in a matter of uh, a very short time, like, you know, 20, 30 seconds, these states of consciousness would arise. And uh, they were very different from what I was familiar with. And the Kundalini uh, teachers, of course, were extremely good. I mean, these were really, really good, knowledgeable teachers. But uh, when I started to talk about these states, uh, which I really didn't have very good vocabulary for, I didn't really didn't know how to talk about what was happening, it, it, was, it was clear that some of these states were, they were not really familiar with or that the teachings didn't really cover in any kind of systematic way. So uh, I started uh, going around talking to people, uh, going to some little mini retreats, and I sort of ventured into the Buddhist world and every time I asked, I would ask these kinds of questions to anyone I could. And I started getting this recurring answer that, oh, the guy you need to talk to is uh, Lee Brasington. You know, he's the guy, altered states of consciousness. He, he knows them all. And af after I heard that a few times, it was an obvious direction to go. So I contacted Lee and uh, he said, yeah, you know, I'm, going to, I'm doing a retreat up in Barry, Mass which is about maybe two and a half hours from here. And he said, uh, if you can come up, we'll, uh, we'll do an interview and we'll talk for a while. And so I did that a couple months later. And uh, he and I had a, a, a very intense one hour chat. And in that one hour, he taught me the jhanas, which is his, uh, you know, his, his real powerhouse and uh, what the Buddha taught all uh, his students. And, uh, I went back and basically did the jhanas every day for the next year and basically done them pretty much every day for the last 20 years. And um, then I came up and did a retreat with Lee the next year, which was a jhana retreat, a 10 day silent retreat where you basically just meditate, you know, 16 hours a day. And it was a great experience. I mean, it was just a whole different level of consciousness. And I'm sure you know from, uh, you've done retreats before, that there's something that happens somewhere around, you know, depending on who you are around maybe three days where the mind just settles in. And there's a kind of a unification of the mind and a kind of background chatter uh, that we typically go through gets really, really quiet. And uh, at the end of that retreat, I realized that I was not going to be able to do another retreat like this probably for a long time because I had uh, you know, a wife and two, two small kids and it just wasn't going to be possible for me to go away for that period of time. And so what I decided to do was just to declare myself on permanent retreat forevermore. And uh, during the retreat, Lee had mentioned that his teacher, Ayakima, had a rule of thumb that you could potentially continue retreat level consciousness if you maintain a minimum, bare minimum of two hours of meditation every single day. And so then I said, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I also tried to basically turn my life into a kind of uh, like a monastic, like a monk in the world. So I'd get up every morning, I'd do about 45 minutes to an hour of yoga. I'd, I'd do an hour of meditation in the morning right after that. And uh, I was getting up 
about, uh, I would get up and do about an hour of meditation in the middle of the night because I, uh, with all the meditation I was doing, I was suddenly having all these spontaneous lucid dreams. And I didn't really know anything about lucid dreams. So I started writing, uh, reading the bear books. And eventually I started you know, doing some study on uh, Tibetan dream yoga. Uh, but one of the very, very effective practices for dream yoga is you get up in the middle of the night when you slept at least, um, <clears throat> at least four hours and you meditate and then go back to bed. It increases the number of lucid dreams, whatever your base level is, somewhere around 20 times. And that's a rule of thumb you'll hear in the literature. That's also been my experience because I have, I keep records on uh, uh, when I had lucid dreams, when I got up and meditated, when I didn't. So, so but anyhow, so I'm doing, so that's, the whole idea is doing it 20, 24 hours by seven, practicing like a monk. So even during the day, you know, I would, uh, go to pick the kids up from school or uh, go to the store or something. And the key was to try to make everything some kind of service, just the way a monk would. Okay, so normally what we do is we just go through the motions of our life kind of a, a little bit, uh, you know, semi-awake and we just sort of go through the motions. Or I'd make an intention to say, okay, I'm going to the store. Why am I going to the store? I'm going to get something so that someone in the family can eat. And there's some, I'm doing this as a, as a service. And uh, so that was the idea. And, uh, you know, at first uh, I wasn't very good at it, but after a while I kind of got the knack of it. And the fact that you could make anything a practice, anything potentially is, is a practice. Okay, so now I'm finally going to get back to your question. I realize this was very circuitous, but I, I think you'll, you'll see why the background is necessary. Okay, parallel to this, now I'm actually learning Buddhism. So I'd learned the jhanas, but I really didn't have the context of the, you know, the Four Noble Truths and all that kind of stuff. Well, as I get more and more into this, this light went off and I realized that this spontaneous kind of random experience I had had, you know, 20 plus years ago was actually more or less the whole basis of Buddhism and really most of the traditions. You could say the same thing about Hinduism or, or actually even some of the Abrahamic traditions. So this, this experience that I had I, I, uh, that you mentioned um, it was, uh, I was, it was in, I was in college. It was a very, very mundane, uh, circumstances, but just spontaneously there was, there was this experience, a momentary experience, something that, uh, the Tibetans call a recognition of mind essence, uh, different traditions have different names for it. In fact, almost every tradition has some kind of way of describing this. And you could say it, it's a moment of being awake. Uh, it's non-dual. It's an experience with no one there. Uh, it's an experience of unified mind. Okay, so those are, you know, there's all these ways of describing something that really can't be described. You can kind of try to, you can try to try to describe it, but it's very different from anything that, that came before. And I knew it was significant. You know, there's just this feeling of, of this is real. And, and in a way, everything that came before was not really quite real. It was like a little bit, uh, a little bit dreamlike, a little bit, uh, a little bit comatose, maybe you could say. But the problem was, is I had no context. There was no one to talk to about it. If even if there was, I really would not have known how to describe it. I didn't have the languaging. And so the conclusion I came, and I also found I couldn't return to it. So I kept trying to over the next week or two. I kept trying to do things to spontaneously return to it. And I couldn't do it. 
So the conclusion I came to was that it was just kind of a one-off. It was something anomalous thing that would never happen again. I even convinced myself that there's probably no one else that even had it. So to try to talk to anybody would be, would be crazy. Well, now everything was different because I'm realizing in the Buddhist literature that this kind of thing is alluded to over and over and over again. So now, 20 plus years later, now I have the understanding and boom, uh, the whole impetus to practice uh, was just first and foremost. It seemed like the obvious thing that, that needed to be done. And, and almost everything else seemed like it would be well, just like a distraction, you know, something nice to do, but you know, to what end? I'm curious what you attempted to do in those two weeks after that experience to get it back. And I'm also curious, having rediscovered the significance of that experience as now as more or less full-time meditator, what uh, did you do to attempt to recapture it? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the two weeks after it actually happened. Mm. Okay. When I was sort of lost in the haze and not really knowing what to do. And then I'll talk about once the 20 years later, when I, when the light bulb went off. Okay. So uh, the first time around, uh, you can imagine the kinds of things you do. You try to recreate the circumstances. Okay. And the irony is that you find out this is something that is completely independent of circumstances. The circumstances are completely irrelevant. And it, it so happened that uh, I tried to, well, I tried to re recreate the circumstances. There's no, there's no need going into what they were because they're irrelevant. And um, so that it just, it didn't work. And again, the circumstances didn't matter. Now, Fast forward 20 years, and what happens is what the one of the great benefits of an experience like this, because it is so significant in that it's a, a unification of the mind, there's a certain degree to which the mind never forgets it. So it can be recalled. And to and you know how a memory is, you know, if you have a particular memory when you recall something, you get sort of the essence of it. It may not be quite as crisp and quite as clear, but you, when you remember something, it's, you get some of that, your whole infrastructure of your nervous system reorients towards whatever it was when that first event happens that was so memorable, if that makes sense. So that's what you do in, in, in meditation. And, um, Ayakima had a very simple instruction. She said, Re recall the previous event. It's called a fruit moment. And she said, recall the previous fruit moment and rest in it. And what happens is the more you do it, um, you know, modern neuroscience has actually shown that um, what happens is when you remember something, you think you just keep remembering the same thing over and over again. But what actually happens is when you remember it, a new memory gets put back in there. So you're, it's like a succession of memories. And so if you keep doing that, you keep recalling it, it gets deeper and more clear, it, like anything you practice, you know, you get better at it. That's why human beings can learn. And uh, so that's what you do. You actually make a practice of recalling the previous fruit moment. And of course, the beauty of meditation is it's much easier to do that the more the mind is calm and clear. You know, if the, if the mind is kind of agitated or dull, you won't, you know, nothing you remember will be as clear. And so that's what a lot of the practice was. It was using the 
hypnogenic states get the mind really, really calm and clear, and then going back and resting in the, in the previous fruit moment. What were your influences then in constructing that practice? It has, I think, echoes, as you mentioned, of Tibetan approaches such as Mahamudra and Sokchen and so on. And I know Lee Brasington, who you've cited as an influence, is a Dzogchen man. <laughs> he's a, he's yes. a Dzogchen practitioner. And yes. he was introduced to Dzogchen, or he trained in Dzogchen with Tzokni Rinpoche, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So did so, you also so train with people like yeah. that? I'm going to just keep the thread of the story here because a lot of these pieces link together. Uh, sure. and I, th I think this will be, I think this will be helpful in, in answering your question. So uh, I continued to do the jhanas. That was sort of my main practice. And uh, about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years later, and all this time, I'm basically a monk in the basement. I have a yoga room in the basement. I spend the, the AM of, of each day down there doing yoga and meditating. And I got a call from uh, a neuroscientist at Yale named Judd Brewer. And he said, look, I'm doing this study on uh, long-term meditators. And uh, Lee Brasington said, you know, you, you have to participate in it. And of course, he was very enthusiastic about it too, because I only live about maybe 35, 40 minutes from Yale. And it's very handy to have a local guinea pig that you can do some testing on these things because you know this fMRI time is very expensive and when you get people you're flying people in from all over North America really around the world and you want to make sure the protocols are right that everything goes smoothly and there's and there's no problems and it turned out uh, not only did I meet the uh, the criteria of the study in terms of the number of hours that I meditated uh, just by uh, kind of good luck I'm very comfortable in an fMRI and, and a lot of people are not. It's very close quarters. Some people get very claustrophobic and it's extremely noisy. You know, it sounds like there's a, if you've ever been in one before, it sounds like there's a jackhammer in each one of your ears and they do, they put uh, earplugs in for you. It makes almost no difference. It's just, it is so loud. So it turns out I was just very comfortable for whatever reason and could meditate, um, could get into meditative states quickly, could stabilize them. The, the noise and uh, the, the small cords just wasn't that big a deal. Well, it turns out this study, uh, it, well, the study itself wound up being a very much a groundbreaking study, if you're, if you're familiar with it at all. This was where uh, Judd uh, both identified and provided uh, scientific support for the fact that an area in the brain called the, uh, the posterior cingulate cortex, the PCC, which is a hub of the brain's selfing network. Okay, it's kind of all of our, I mean my thoughts, all the kind of thoughts that lead to suffering, right? Relative to the Four Noble Truths. It turns out that's a hub. And he was able to demonstrate, and you could get in the fMRI and actually look at your PCC while you were meditating and watch it just drop, it would go blue. And, it and uh, of course, there's obviously an experience with that. You know, what, as a meditator, you know what that feels like, but you could actually see it in real time watching your own brain. And um, so this was a, a very significant study because it showed that meditators could in fact control their PCCs through their practice. And the, uh, 
the, the really nice thing about the study as uh, someone participating in it, particularly someone locally, as I mentioned, Judd is flying people in from all over. And so it was a who's who of, of at least Western Buddhism. You know, uh, Judd would have these uh, sessions when he'd fly someone in. He was running the, um, the New Haven Sangha, uh, the uh, Buddhist Sangha at that time. And so we would have, we would go to, there's a chapel on, uh, at Yale, and whoever he brought in would give a talk, and there would be quite a few people from Yale and, and the broader community there. And then afterwards, people would just break off in groups and you'd talk late into the night until the maintenance people at Yale threw us out. And so it was a great opportunity, you know, for someone who'd been sort of in a cave in, in my basement for years uh, of getting, you know, meeting all of the who's who of Western Buddhism. I mean, Shinzen Young, who you know, mentioned Lee Brasington, who I already knew, but Kenneth Falk and Daniel Ingram and uh, Joseph Goldstein, a lot of that IMS crowd, um, Gary Weber. And even beyond that, there were people you'd never heard of. And they weren't teachers, uh, they hadn't written a book, but they had deep, deep practice. And the traditions have very standard ways of describing things. There's like a way that you describe certain things because that's how it's written in the tradition. And these people were talking, they were using different language. And the reason why is because they were talking from their own experience as opposed to what they had read in a book. So there was just, it was, uh, the whole thing uh, reminded me of kind of a modest version of Axial Age India, where you had these Jain practitioners and these Hindu practitioners and these Zoroastrians. And of course, that's where the Buddha got his start. There was no Buddhism because he was, you know, he was just starting out. And they would all get together and they would share their practices and they would teach, I'll teach you my practice and if you'll teach me yours. And it was just like a, like a hotbed, you know, just like a hothouse for, um, um, for all these new practices. And that's where, you know, all these, a lot of these great traditions got spawned. So it had that quality. It was very, very exhilarating and uh, really just uh, great fun. All right. So now you asked a question about Dzogchen. Okay. So that, so I'm actually, I have not forgotten your question. So, um, Shortly after that, a new virtual community uh, called the Buddhist Geeks community got founded. And I don't know if you're familiar at all with it, but um, it was a virtual Sangha. And it was connected through, people were connected through Google+. And uh, it was another kind of exhilarating thing because uh, now it was an opportunity to uh, interact with lots of people, you know, with all different sort of levels of practice from all different kinds of traditions. And the, uh, the Buddhist Geeks community was a, a wonderful experiment. And it was an experiment that was ahead of its time. And um, because the technologies were just starting and, you know, Google Plus was hot for a little while, but then it started to wane, which was a problem. And... Um, they were trying to find an economic model that would, would, would work, sort of a business model where you could take in enough money and provide value to people. And uh, so whenever you're ahead of the curve like that, there's always the risk that you get surprises and they, they weren't able to, to come up with a business model that worked. But even after it, it closed, not, not that long after, uh, a bunch of contacts had been made. And so a bunch of us basically said, hey, this is an experiment that sh should continue and we had a perfect solution to the business model problem. 
which is that it was going to be free. No one was ever going to pay a penny. We created this new uh, virtual sangha called Dharmacanics, uh, which we kept on Google Plus, and then we migrated over to Facebook a couple of years ago. And what we said is, look, uh, all of us are practicing. And so what we're going to do, we obviously can't create a lot of work. But what we should do is take the fruits of our existing practice. So some people would have these just sitting sessions where they were meditating, but they meditate online. And they post something and say, hey, listen, I'm meditating at 10 o'clock this morning. Come and hang out if you want to. And we formed these peer-to-peer -peer groups and folks would talk about their experiences. And we started and we said, no, let's, let's try to see if we can do this for free. And that was, I think, probably about, uh, it's got to be at least four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, it works. In the course of that, you find that there are these, oh, the proliferation of traditions. I mean, you know, in Buddhism, there's the, you know, the nine yanas of Buddhism. There's actually nine complete systems within Buddhism that call themselves Buddhism, and they're actually very different. You could say that the, you know, the Four Noble Truths is a consistency, but beyond that, the practices are wildly different. The views are actually different. You know, if you, if you ask people in different traditions to describe, well, what's the nature of the self and the nature of the world? You can get Buddhists that will give you wildly different answers. And uh, of course, it's really not a problem. People think it's a problem. It's actually not a problem. So we had people in the, in the group that were long-term, you know, three, four decades of Vajrayana practice, three, four years of Zen, uh, people's long-term uh, Theravada practice. And so we were all just sort of talking together and getting to know one another. And uh, during this time, I, I knew that uh, Lee had uh, uh, sat with uh, Sokni Rinpoche. I also got to know some people in our community, in the Dharma mechanics community that had Vajrayana experience. And everybody said, you know, uh, Sokni Rinpoche is really someone that you should, um, uh, should try to connect with. So I did a retreat with, uh, with Sokni. And uh, it included pointing out instructions, you know, which are kind of a very basic thing in the Dzogchen tradition. And uh, it was quite an experience. And uh, it's all, always difficult to talk about an experience in, the, in, in, a, in a vacuum from other experiences you have. So you don't really know if you would have had the same experience if you had practiced, if not practiced for 20 years or if you'd done different practices. But nonetheless, the pointing out instructions were really quite powerful. And in many ways, it points back to this experience that I talked about. This, it's what they call a recognition of mind essence, which is the, the first way I describe this experience. It's, it's, there, there are some similarities, some differences, but there's, there's believe me, a lot of overlap. And I also uh, got a chance to spend some time with Sokni Rinpoche and talk about uh, neuroscience and the work that I've been doing with uh, Judd Brewer. And uh, he had never been brain scanned, but his brother, Mingyur Rinpoche, who you may be familiar with, he's sort of like the Dalai Lama's key guy that uh, all the um, Richie Davidson uh, neuroscience work, uh, he's been uh, an ongoing uh, neuroscience uh, subject. So we had quite a nice, quite a nice discussion uh, about that. And over the years, my uh, meditation practice has gone, uh, it, it was the jhanas were the way to start, and the jhanas are a great way to develop the basic skills that you need for a mind that's, that's indistractable, right? Because our minds just go all over the place. You know, we're, we focus on one thing, and then something happens, and we jump somewhere else. So that kind of a clear, uh, stable, um, 
calm mind is very, very helpful for anything that you want to do in practice. But over time, uh, my practice, the meditation practice has become more and more the Dzogchen practice of non-meditation, where you're not actually, you're not actually doing anything. The whole idea is to just rest in this natural state and, uh, and, and don't do anything, just kind of get used to that state. And then during the course of that's during a, a sit, uh, it's not, it's non-meditation. It's not really meditation, but then during the course of the day, you want to continue recognizing that state because that state is always there. It's not just there when you meditate. It's a natural state. It's the way things always are. So, so I think in a, in a very roundabout way, I, I, did I answer your question then about, about Dzogchen and the, yeah. That's very interesting. From what you've said, and I understand you don't want to go into great detail you've had a great deal of success in business. And you mentioned that a downfall in your opinion of the Buddhist geeks experiment or movement or whatever you call it, uh, was the inability to find a sustainable way to um, support the, uh, to commercialize it essentially. Cash flow problem, I guess. <laughs> what do you, now of course, as you're, as you're well aware, there's a lot of variation in opinion about money, business, when it comes to spiritual teaching. There are some that say it's immoral to charge anything at all. Uh, some who have a very different approach. As a successful businessman and a also very uh, experienced practitioner, spiritual practitioner, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I, just a couple of things that, you know, I don't want to be uh, in, in any way critical of the Buddhist geeks community. I mean, they were trying something new and that's, that's always tough. And I think many, many, as you mentioned, many different spiritual teachers, enterprises kind of struggle with this. And uh, unfortunately, it leads to some stuff that's not very productive because a lot of this stuff winds up being uh, aimed at very uh, wealthy people. Right? I mean, some of these retreats are really, really expensive. So, but there are a few things that I would say. One is that, you know, in Dharma mechanics, we offer a lot of virtual retreats. And that's one of the, one of the things that uh, is really quite, quite beneficial about the Sangha. One of the really nice things is that all of our folks are used to using Zoom because, um, you know, we use the technology, we use it for our, 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 our hangouts. And they're very comfortable doing, uh, getting teaching, doing interviews over Zoom. So we do, you know, every year we, we do uh, uh, a 10-day uh, silent retreat with Lee Brazington. We do the jhanas. We've done that, uh, I think it's that's three years now. And enormous amounts of money are saved. So the, the teacher is doing well. It's easier for the teacher. The teacher doesn't have to travel. Uh, particularly, a lot of the teachers now are getting older. You know, their health is, 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 is not as good. Coronavirus. Right? We've done several uh, virtual retreats because no one's ever uh, caught uh, co coronavirus through a virtual uh, hangout or a virtual retreat that I know of. Oh, yeah. So it, saves, it saves a lot of money and it's, and it's safe. Mutating, I hear. You What's know, that? It's mutating. You never know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so far, not so far, anyhow. Um, the other thing that I would say is that there are lots of new business models uh, evolving. And, uh, you know, you and I obviously both know Shinzen. I love what he's doing with the virtual stuff and even some of the dial-in stuff for people who don't have internet access. 
he's got a good methodology. He's routinized it. You know, so it's a lot of it is you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And he gets, uh, sometimes he gets a couple hundred people for some of these, for some of these little mini retreats. And um, as a result of it, he can, he's hired some infrastructure. He's got a couple people that support him. You know, most of the teachers are doing everything themselves. And so that kind of, uh, you know, rationalization where the teacher focuses on teaching, not collecting money and uh, making sure the Zoom link works or the dial-up number works and whatnot. And it's much more efficient. So there's been, uh, like anything else, there's uh, experimentation and people are finding new models that are much more efficient, uh, confer much more benefit to the students and uh, without uh, actually the students spending more money, more of the money is actually getting into the hands of the teachers because you know, teachers deserve to uh, get compensated uh, at, a, at a fair level so they can continue to teach more. Mm, interesting. So, okay, could you tell us cool anecdotes from the Judd Brewer days? For instance, who, which, which style has the best yogis? Which style has the worst yogis? And any, any shockers? I'm very curious if you could spill the beans on some of the, the Judd Brewer stuff. Well, I'll, I'll say a few things. Um, one is that there were some surprises. There were, uh, there were some examples, and Judd has talked about this, so I'm not telling any uh, tales out of school here, uh, of people who supposedly you know, had been very, very attained that in fact, uh, you, you can just look at the, the, the fMRI output and see that something just was not, something just was not happening. Um, I would also say one of the interesting things is um, there was a study that was done uh, by a guy named Jeffrey Martin uh, not too many years ago where he interviewed a lot of these people and uh, he would kind of hang out uh, at their at their homes and interview them about their experience in, you know all days hours day and night and um, until he got thrown out and you know it sometimes would go on for days and days and whatever and one of the interesting results of this study was that there are, you know, as you probably know, there's, there's like five or six major kinds of meditative practice, right? Vipassana and shamatha and self-inquiry. You know, we could go on and on. You, you, you know what they basically are. And one of the things he found was that almost always someone who uh, was an experienced meditator and had, you know, had developed some level of, of capability found one particular way in of those six and kind of wrote it for whatever reason and had come to the conclusion that that was the way and that people who were doing any of the other five were just completely wasting their time. They were just completely delusional. It was just never going to get them there. Well, one of the nice things about the Judd Brewer study was that it put everybody kind of equal footing because you go, we all got a PCC and we all could get in there and meditate. And what it turned out is that basically the same thing was happening for the, the people who really had developed meditation skills in any of those six approaches. And uh, that's actually good news because it means that you don't have to, as a, as a new practitioner or, a, you know, somewhat, uh, experienced practitioner, you don't have to quote unquote, pick the right one. 
if you find something and you get proper instruction in it and you practice it, it works. You know, it will, it will change your life in, in, in some significantly positive way. What you're saying there is that someone who's achieved a certain degree of competency in whatever style has the same effect on the PCC. But, but of course, that's not to say that different styles don't have other effects in other dimensions of brain activity or other dimensions of experience, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. But I will, uh, I'm going to give you, um, this is my opinion now. Okay. So I cannot prove this definitively, although Judd has been doing this stuff. You know, this, he started this 12, 13 years ago, he's continued to do studies. There was actually a brain scan study. He's now up at Brown with, that I was going to be involved in this year uh, that the coronavirus thing kind of put the kibosh on, but that's going to happen. Uh, he's been doing lots of stuff with other brain areas, et cetera. But the thing I will say is that, and this is a simplification, but I'll stand by it. All of spiritual development, all of these practices, all of this mind training, at the end of the day, comes down to the same more or less fundamental thing, which is changing from a view of the world that I am sort of this small contracted thing trying to get something and trying to get away from some other things, okay? To a way of being where that all just gets let go of. There's just kind of an opening up, just a loosening, just a And the PCC is the hub of that because when you are in that fMRI and you watch the PCC go blue, that's not in a vacuum. There's a feeling, you have an experience, you know what that's like. It's, it's a lot like that mind recognition experience that I mentioned before. And it's really fundamental. And it's fundamental to all these techniques. If all these techniques are not taking you in that direction, away from the small, contracted, tight, need to get something, need to get away from something towards a much more expansive, open, empty, the Buddhists say empty or non-dual, um, some, something is not right. And you, and you know, all meditators know what that feeling is like, you know, because when you meditate, essentially what you're doing is you're, all, you're the, the fMRI is like a feedback system. Well, you have your own internal feedback system where you know that something feels like it's going in the direction of freedom, going in the direction of liberation and joy and bliss and stillness. So the two of those are very consistent. And um, I think it would be, uh, I know I, I'm getting the feeling that you would like me to ordain one particular uh, technique better than others. And I would say that would really be, um, I, I would feel I was misleading you because it's really, it's the ability to get the instructions and practice any one of them rather than any one of them being quote unquote the right one. They will all lead you to that place that I'm, that I'm describing. And that's really, that's not the technique. The technique is just a technique. Um, it's, um, it's getting to a place that uh, is a very, very different way of being and, and, and stabilizing there. Mm -hmm. Let's loop back and talk about lucid dreaming. Yeah. Uh, when you, you know, you, you mentioned that you'd had some spontaneous lucid dreams in your life before, uh, but then when you began this uh, more intensive practice regime in, in the wake of, of uh, learning the Janus from Lee Brasington, your lucid dreams were increasing. And then when you implemented the, what I believe is called wake up, get back to bed technique or something like this, wake up back to bed technique by meditating in, in the middle of the night, 
you had a radical 20 times increase in your lucid dreaming. What were those initial lucid dreaming experiences like? What were you doing in those lucid dreaming experiences? And how has your lucid dream practice, I suppose, evolved over the decades? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, you've had lucid dreams before, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. And so you know, you know what the experience is basically like. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, of course, they all start out the same way. It's a light bulb goes off and it's, this is a dream and you know, it's a dream. So they all start, you go from this kind of confusion to a, a kind of awake, awake in the dream. So I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. And, and anyone who's uh, had a lucid dream knows basically what that's like. And if you've never had a lucid dream, there's probably, I mean, I could, I could say a lot of things, but it, it probably wouldn't mean that much. But what's interesting about it, when it starts to become a practice, and this is really the beauty of um, the Tibetans, because they took this experience and they made it into an entire regime of practice. So what happens is you, after you have, you know, when you first have lucid dreams, you want to do something fun. So you, you go flying. That's sort of the, the, the typical thing you do. And that's great. And uh, that doesn't lose its, you know, it's still exhilarating at the beginning of a lucid dream to launch off. And I don't, haven't stopped doing that kind of thing. But what happens very quickly is that you realize that there's even things that you can do that are much more, uh, I'll say fun, but also much more rewarding and fulfilling. And there's a whole uh, progression of experiments consciousness experiments. And that's really the difference between yoga, dream yoga and, uh, and lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is kind of turning your, your nighttime mind into a fun house. Dream yoga is turning it into a consciousness laboratory, which is actually a lot more compelling. And so you start doing these series of consciousness experiments. And uh, anyone who's had a number of lucid dreams has probably figured out that in a lucid dream, because it is a completely construction of your mind, you can do anything that you believe you can do. If you believe it, you can do it. If you have any hesitation or, gee, I don't know, uh, it won't happen. So you, you, know, you know the thing about walking through walls? It's actually, even for someone who's lucid dreamed a lot, it's hard to walk through a wall in a dream because at the last moment you have this little bit of indecision because it looks so real. You know, dreams are so real. So what you do is you learn you can back in. And so you back into it and then all of a sudden you're backing in, you're backing in and then all of a sudden you notice the, the walls in front of you. Okay. So you learn a few tricks, but basically if you believe you can do it, you can do it. And what these, these series of uh, dream experiments are, uh, consciousness experiments are aimed at doing is teaching you the utter malleability of consciousness. Okay. So, you know, in the real world, when we walk around, we think, oh, well, everything is all these circumstances. Oh, I was lucky this happened, or I wanted this to happen and it didn't happen. Oh, you know, woe is me. Well, there's none of that in a dream because the dream is nothing but a construction of your mind. And there are no objects. It's just all mind stuff. So what you do is you start working with the malleability and you, you, you change up. Uh, you change your, your body shape, you shape shift, or, and you do that to uh, other objects or other beings. So if, you're, if you have a, uh, a frightening dream, a lot of times you, uh, um, you know, you'll wake up and there'll be some fire-breathing dragon or something. Well, you turn the fire-breathing dragon into a tulip, or you just go up and hug the dragon or whatever. Uh, 
And there's a whole series of these things, which one does over years. There's a, these are quite some in-depth uh, experiments. And you realize this utter malleability. And of course, what happens then, uh, the idea is to bring back what you've learned, these insights, these are basically the insights, and bring it back to the world. And uh, the Tibetans often say that the, the waking world is dreamlike. Well, it's, they don't mean that it's a dream. It's not a dream. It's, Waking, waking is different from, from a dream, but it's very dreamlike. And the malleability of our daytime experience is vastly beyond what we think it is. So a lot of these circumstances that we think, oh, you know, I, I would only be happy if this happened or if, or if I could only get away from this. Well, that's just a story we tell ourselves. And these circumstances really are not nearly as relevant as we think. And your daytime experience just becomes more and more malleable. And you've got this feeling of, you know, this sort of lucidity of being clear and being calm. And uh, every, I, everyone, I think, knows that exhilaration to, uh, that you feel when you know you're lucid. You know, there's just this feeling of freedom. It's like nothing can, nothing can harm me, right? You know that feeling. Um, more and more of that starts to pervade uh, the day uh, when you're awake. Yeah, that's fascinating. Who, who did you uh, learn or where did you learn the dream yoga from the Tibetan Buddhist uh, systems? Well, you know, I've actually never had uh, a, a dream yoga teacher, although I, I, really, I shouldn't say that. I, I actually did have a very, very renowned uh, Tibetan teacher, uh, but uh, it, it actually didn't, he took me as a student and I got, you know, uh, initiation and all that, but uh, he actually did not live that much longer. So I, I, I won't say much more about it, but um, I've mostly, uh, I, you know, I've picked up a lot of stuff from uh, the B. Ellen Wallace courses. He's a very, very good uh, dream yoga teacher. Um, but I've mostly just learned it on my own, read about it and studied it. It's one of the, it's one of the few things that I practice regularly uh, that I have never uh, really found uh, Good teacher, we, you know, we did do a hangout recently uh, with um, um, Andrew uh, Holacek, who you, who you, uh, I think you know. Um, so, you know, I've had some interactions with him, but um, it's more or less things that I've pieced together uh, on my own and practiced. Do you still follow that regime of getting up in the night? And are you still having lucid dreams after all this time? I've heard some people say as the as the years go on with with dream practice sometimes the dreams can in a sense dry up or give way to uh, say sort of clear lights uh, yoga yogic sleep practices and so on i'm also curious if you've ever encountered dreams that are in the category of say prophetic dreams uh, or diagnostic dreams uh, these these sorts of dreams or situations whereby you've met as is sometimes reported deceased or living gurus in dreams or deceased or living family members in dreams and this sort of thing, uh, who would be perhaps more than the construction of mind? Yeah. Yeah. There's, those are some, those are some great questions. Let, let me, uh, let me just try to thumb through them moviola style. And if I, if I miss some of them, cause there's quite a bit in there, uh, you remind me. Uh, sure. When, when you uh, first thing I would say is yet yeah, I've continued to do the practice and I'm telling you people, when they first hear about it, they say, Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I got to get up in the middle of the night and, and, meditate you gotta be kidding just knock me out when i go to sleep just knock me out and so I, you know i need rest well you know like so many things uh you know preconceived notion you have before you do it 
can be very different from the, the reality of it. And what happens is actually through human history, there's this whole idea of going to bed for eight hours and then, you know, or however many hours you can, and then being awake the whole time. That's actually more of an anomaly. And, you know, prior to the industrial revolution, even, uh, even in the United States and Europe, uh, it was very common for people to sleep for about four hours, get up in the middle of the night, socialize, get together with friends, they'd have a meal. And uh, it's kind of this timeless time. It's very peaceful. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's like another world and then, go, and then go back to sleep. And the way it works out from a f uh, the standpoint of our physiology and what it actually feels like, you, you really do need kind of that first four hours of sleep because there's a basic mechanism where the, the brain uh, cleans out amyloids, these waste products. And if you get up before the four hours, that's not going to be fun. Uh, but after four hours, you find that when you wake up, I never set an alarm. I don't need to because I'm going to get up. You know, most people uh, need to empty their bladders some, some point during eight hours. So they're going to get up at some point. And after four hours, when you get up, you realize that it's completely, you're free to do whatever you want. You can go back to bed if you want. But if you want to get up and meditate, it's no problem. And it's actually quite easy to meditate. There's no distractions very quiet, it's timeless, all those kinds of aspects. And then when you do go back to sleep, it is just the most choice sleep. I mean, this is talk about high quality sleep. It feels a little shallow. It's not like knocked out, but it's really, really restful. So that when you wake up, you are, you're ready to go and, 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 and do whatever you need to do. And uh, so I've, I've, I've continued to do that, uh, that practice. I've continued to have uh, lucid dreams. They've increased over the time period. They're more frequent. One of the interesting things I find, and this is the benefit of a Sangha, is that the more we have a kind of a lucid dreaming group in, uh, uh, in Dharma mechanics, and it, um, our activities kind of ebb and flow a little bit. You know, it gets hotter at some times and a little bit less at some times. And when it's, when, it's, when it's hot and we're having a lot of hangouts and people are sharing their dreams, some people journal them, you know, so you get, get them online or they talk about their dreams, uh, the frequency of lucid dreams for me almost doubles. It's just, it's having your, you know, you know, the three jewels, you know, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. There's a reason why the Buddha was big on a Sangha. There's really benefits to being with people that are like-minded. They're doing similar things. They're sharing their insights. You get the benefit from them. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and then the other question that you asked was kind of, um, the kinds of experiences. And I will say they are very, well, I'll talk about the nature of the dreams. Um, I still, when I become lucid, will a lot of times just do something exhilarating and fun just to keep the whole thing kind of light and not too seriously. But more and more, it is more of the clear light type experiences where you just plunge to the bottom of the ocean. You just, you, you realize that the dream is nothing but a dream. You dissolve it and whew, suddenly you're in just this vast, empty, open, uh, content-free space. So that's, uh, so that's a great thing to do. And that's something that I have uh, done more of uh, as, as time has gone by. And then you asked a question about, I think the word you used was diagnostic. I'll, I'll talk first of all about the diagnostic, because I find that the dreams are extraordinarily diagnostic. And even 
the non-lucid dreams are diagnostic. So, you know, what happens when you first start a dream yoga practice, you're really focused on the lucid dreams. And if you have a lucid dream, you feel really great. And if or you, you haven't, you've gone a you know, period of time without a lucid dream, you're, you're down, uh, what's wrong? But that's not what happens is over time. Because after a while, you realize that there's as much learning from the non-lucid nights because you can ask the question, you can do an inquiry, ah, why no lucidity last night? And of course, you remember more and more of the dreams. So you realize, you know, if I use the term dream sign, you know what a dream sign is? That's yeah, a recurring uh, yeah. phenomenon that appears in your dream that lets right. you know you're dreaming. For instance, you always dream of Joe Pesci or something like that. It's like, whenever I see Joe Pesci, I know I'm dreaming. So what happens is um, you remember more and more of your dreams. So you, even a night when you're not lucid, you wake up in the morning, you usually remember at least two, three, four dreams. It's about how many REM cycles you've had. And almost invariably, there will be at least one, you get to know your dream signs very well, there will be at least one dream sign. So you can ask the question, why? Why was that not recognized? And there's some lesson in it. And it usually tends to be something that is tied to your daytime practice. And when, you know, people who do mindful, mindfulness practice or even recognizing mind essence that we talked about before, you know, you're in and you're out. You know, until you're a Buddha, you're in and you're out, you're in and you're out. So why is it, what things cause the out? And then what things cause a longer time period before there's a recognition and back in? And uh, so there's almost always something very, very fruitful and diagnostic in, those, in, the, in any of the dreams, regardless of what happens. And actually you're learning more from the ones where you don't get lucid because that's where there's some opportunity. There's some, there's some fruit there to be, uh, to, to kind of some gold to be mined. Could you give an example of that to illustrate that point? Well, let me think. Let me think. Um, you know, I'll tell you something. One of the reasons why a, a, a dream sign is not recognized, it's often because the dream is so pleasant. Okay. It's like, oh, I don't want to leave this dream. I just want to keep going. It's like stay in this dream. And of course, unfortunately, uh, well, I should say, fortunately, lucidity is always better than the dream. Okay. In the same way that Nibbana is always better than samsara. Okay. There's actually some pleasant samsara, right? I mean, some, some samsara is not as bad. And so it is, but it is better when one recognizes some samsaric behavior, really. It's really, it's back to this uh, utter um, malleability of consciousness. I'm I'm allowing, I'm sort of saying okay to samsara. You know, I'll, yeah, I'll just go along with this, you know. And uh, so that is a very, very significant, uh, it was a very significant insight is that um, lucidity and being awake is always better than being in some kind of a trance or some kind of a dullness, even though it might seem like a, a pleasant trance. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, and, and then you asked a question about various forms of, uh, I'll say, there's like a whole continuum of bridging towards magic. Okay. Um, the, um, the, the teacher that I mentioned, uh, and I'll use his name, um, um, Namki Norbu, Chagyal Namki Norbu, was renowned for having performed what his students describe in detail as miracles. Uh, and he would have these dreams 
where he would uh, dream about these certain scriptures that they would be handed to him by some very famous uh, llama of the past. And he'd wake up in the morning and the scroll would be in his hand and he would bring it to a, a llama, his llama, and they would be authenticated. So, um, you know, I, my particular orientation towards this kind of thing is that I am open-minded towards it. So, you know, I haven't witnessed it myself. Um, I certainly would not rule it out. That would be, I mean, what do I know, right? Who, who am I to say that something like this was, was, did not occur? You know, that would be me sort of saying, well, I know, I know better. On the other hand, I haven't had enough corroboration for it. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, keep, I keep sort of in that middle ground, that sort of openness to the possibilities of things without being too dogmatic one way or the other. I, I, what I found is that being sort of dogmatic in one direction or the other almost always does not lead to good things. It does not lead to further development, further inquiry, further curiosity into these things. Um, you know, I will tell you that I have uh, certainly encountered uh, people in my dreams that are no longer living but, you know, that happens all the time in your dreams, right? Everybody has dreams like that. And so, you know, I don't try to ascribe too much into it, you know. Uh, I just sort of take it for what it is. It was, there was a dream. It was an experience. It happened. And there were these things learned from it. To me, the, the, what was learned from it, the insights to it, are more important than anything that actually happened in the dream because, you know, it's a dream. And I don't want to oversubscribe too much into it. Because that could, you know, again, lead to something not too useful. On the other hand, I don't want to just dismiss it. You know, there's, there's some middle ground where it's explored to say, is there some wisdom here, something that can be learned from it, an insight that is going to be beneficial going forward. Yeah, that's very, that's very fascinating. That's such a cool topic, I think. Bridging from the topic of lucid dreams more broadly to practice in general, something I've heard teachers of lucid dreaming mention, such as B. Allen Wallace, who you mentioned, is that certain lifestyle and environmental factors can have an effect on one's uh, ability to lucid dream. For instance, simple things like the amount of sleep one gets, uh, and, and then some less obvious things like the, the level of one's mindfulness achieved through meditation or the level of one's calm achieved through meditation but also could be due to life circumstances and so on. Given that you live a, what you described as monastic life in the sense that your life is devoted and oriented towards practice and you don't have uh, work commitments, I'm assuming that's still the case. I'm curious what you've noticed then in terms of lifestyle affecting your lucid dreaming, but also meditation in general. I'm also curious what your family think about your orientation to practice getting up in the middle of the night and doing doing this sort of stuff you're, you're a man who doesn't do things by halves so i'm curious in a certain sense in both of those things how 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 you see lifestyle factors affecting things like meditation uh, and lucid dreaming uh, and also how that works within the context of a family life those are great questions i'll ask the i'll answer the practice question first um when i first started doing this my family thought i was absolutely nuts and um, what happened over time is they kind of warmed up to it because what they found is that I was just a much nicer person to be around. And, uh, you know, it, when, I, when I first started to do it, it was actually kind of rigid. You know, I felt like I had to have this block of time to do this and this block of time to do that. 
But over time, you, uh, you actually not only get more flexible, but you sort of revel in the flexibility. So it's this idea that, you know, oh, everything's going, all going wrong. You know, this, these things have to be done or there's an emergency or whatever. And yet what needs to be done can still be done. That's much more of a feeling of freedom. You know, if you're sort of fixed in the schedule, then that's, that's wholly counter to the whole thing. So, um, yeah, that uh, was rough in the early going, uh, but has gotten to be, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a non-issue now. There's just no, there's no sort of friction between anybody who needs help with something in the family, they're, they're going to get it. That's first priority over anything. And to me, that's part of the practice. That's part of the service aspect of, of you know, being monastic. Um, yeah, so that took a little while, but once once everybody sort of got with the program, everybody sort of figured out they were uh, it, it, it worked better. Um, okay, so that was that was your second question. Now, your first question was about the effects on lucid dreaming, and I would say a couple things. And um, you know, I have my own data on this, so I can speak to that. It doesn't necessarily mean it would be true for any everybody else or anyone else, but I'll, I'll tell you what my data says. First of all, I'm almost certain that leaving, lead, leading a relatively calm life has a very positive effect. And the reason for that is not, not just my own experience, but also the, um, the science behind it. And, and there are converging theories now in um, uh, both in uh, psychology and neuroscience and philosophy that there is a purpose to dreaming. It's, you know, it isn't just random that we dream at night. And it has to do with a basic survival mechanism where our ancestors who were able to dream had a huge advantage because what they did is because the body had to be dormant for a certain amount of time. You need to, you need to rest, right? That's a requirement of having a big body. There's all this downtime where the brain is just sort of sitting there. The whole nervous system is sitting there. And so what we did is they evolved a technique, a tactic of dreaming where Things that happened during the day, that day, prior days, that had survival implications were rehearsed over and over again. That's why we have dream science, because we're rehearsing over and over again those quote-unquote life-threatening things that we have not resolved. Okay? And interestingly, by the way, once you really uh, nail one of your dream signs and can recognize it over and over again, it stops. You don't get it anymore because you, your, your mind knows that it has resolved that particular survival scenario. Okay. All right. So, so when you're dreaming, you're practicing these things. And of course, the way it used to work in the old days when uh, survival meant being eaten by a tiger, you probably, one of your dream signs was getting attacked by a tiger because it happened one time and you escaped, but you wanted to make sure you really learned the lesson. Well, in modern day life, the quote unquote survival circumstances are, you know, getting in a fight with your boss or some kind of dispute with a family member, all these kind of emotional things that really do have that same, they, they activate a lot of our fight and flight type mechanisms, which were survival mechanisms. So what happens is during, when, particularly when you uh, start to remember your dreams, you start to realize that what happens is in the first hour or two of sleep, your dreams will be about things that happened very recently, things that happened that day, you know, something that was unresolved, something you felt bad about, something you did, some guilt about, whatever. As the night goes on, and this is why it's so good to, to 
to meditate in the middle of the night after four hours, six, six hours, I think is even better if you're going to sleep two, uh, eight hours. You, you, you want to get up about two hours. You want to go back to bed about two hours before you're going to get up. You're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the subconscious. And this is where real purification happens. This is where our deep seated conditioning, our deep aversions, you know, greed, <clears throat> hatred, things that we're afraid of. <clears throat> this is where those get resolved. So what happens if you have a really agitated day and you're creating all this stuff, you're not going to get into the real deep subconscious. You might not even get into it in that, in, in whatever time that you sleep. And of course the deep subconscious is where the dream yoga really works because you really work on that and you uproot that and you purify stuff. Purification is usually the term that's used you purify stuff that will never come back. There will be certain fears that you will purify that will never come back. Uh, and so that kind of a, a calm lifestyle. Now, I think there are probably some people that can li live what you, know, you or and I would observe as something a very you know, energetic lifestyle. I mean, even, uh, even lamas that run a monastery, you know, things can get very energetic. So a lot of it is how you deal with the stuff that happens. That's quite important. But I think in general, living a calm lifestyle, uh, most importantly in terms of how you react to stuff, but also, you know, the circumstances. I mean, until you're a Buddha, circumstances, you know, have an effect. Uh, that probably does affect the level of the frequency of lucidity. That's very fascinating. Thank you. All right. Well, to sort of wrap things up, I think there's a through line in your dedication to practice and the orientation that you have in terms of uh, spiritual awakening. You mentioned Daniel Ingram, who of course became quite controversial, I suppose over a decade ago, claiming to be an arhat, the highest level of enlightened attainment within the Theravadan school. Uh, and in that school, of course, there's the four path model uh, where one goes through a series of awakenings until one becomes an arhat. I'm curious, in the arc of your practice, if you've had experiences that have correlated with that map or with other maps, of course, there are other maps too, the Tambumis of the Bodhisattva and so on. There are many maps. Uh, and I'm curious, where's your mind at now? And how do you orient your practice now? Uh, so it's a two-pronged question really, is to say, in the arc of your practice, have there been significant shifts that you could correlate to a map, if that's even a, a co correlation that you've been interested in making? And also, where's your mind at now? And where's your practice oriented uh, at this point in time going forward? Those are great questions. Uh, you, uh, you may not know this, but I am a, a, a fairly well-known uh, within uh, the Sangha as a map geek. I love maps. And I have researched this across all traditions. And every tradition has a map. Even the traditions that say, you know, there are no maps, maps are evil, watch out for maps, they can, you can get lost in all kinds of, you know, blind alleys, they all still have a map, okay? And of course, the beauty of the maps, I mean, if you want to criticize the maps, you cer certainly can, because they're, what they're hoping to do is to describe all of reality and the progress of the mind through that reality. And of course, reality is vast. So any map is going to be this incredible, you know, distillation and oversimplification. And it's got to lop off all things. Otherwise, the map would be, you know, it would take up, you know, 
thousands and thousands of pages and still and still wouldn't be any good. So there's you know that there's that limitation, but most of these maps have survived a couple thousand years, as long as these traditions have been around. And the reason they survive is because they have captured, there's some real wisdom there. There's some real insights into what kinds of things are happening. So, and of course, all the maps are different. When you look at these maps, you, they sound so different. You say, oh, they're talking about different things. And, and I actually know some academics who study these maps in detail. They know a lot about them. And they say they're all completely different. These traditions have almost nothing in common. And uh, of course, the key is, like any map, to comment on the map, you need to know the terrain. So if someone asks you, if, is there a map, is this a good map of New York City? If you've never been to New York City, there's just, there's not really much you can say. If you've been there, you can say, yeah, this is helpful. Right? So each of these maps adds something to the story. Okay? Um, the, uh, the, the, the Theravadan, the, the four path model, I think is a brilliant model. It has got such, there is so, it's very condensed. There's not much to it, but there is so much uh, wisdom, I guess, is, is, the, is the word for it. And I guess the key thing I would say is I, I do not want to in any way, shape, or form suggest that there's anything special about me. Uh, all I can say is that I have practiced these traditions. And what happens is if you practice them, you know, they've gone through this Darwinian, again, another Darwinian process. The reason why they're around is because they work. So for any normal person who gets some good instruction and does the practice, your, your life is going to improve. You know, you're going to feel a stable feeling of well-being much more frequently. Your mind is going to be more calm. Your mind is going to be more clear. You're going to find changes in your behavior based on a deeper understanding of who you are and how you interact with the world and, and the kind of impact that, uh, that you have the world, on the world. And most importantly, you are going to, um, you're going to be much more able to be of service to others. And you know, in today's world, that is something that, uh, that we, we definitely need more of. So I would say, you know, any, anyone that's looking for a practice, find something to practice, get some good instruction and, um, you'll definitely get some benefit from it. Ron Serrano, thank you very much. You bet. You bet, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.